Maximize your sense of aliveness. Gain new perspectives on health, your body, and the meaning of life. You can control your physiology and how you feel in your body in this moment. Your life will never be the same. This is the Vitality Podcast with Andrea Page. Immersing yourself in the idea of health, right? But not as an idea, as a truth. That's sat, truth. As a truth that's deep inside of you that my intention is to awaken. So I'm not here to teach you anything that you don't already know somewhere deep inside of you. I'm here rather to remind you of the things that you do know deep inside of you, all right? And uh, a lot of people have these, these, I don't know if I can say awakenings, but these realizations where they're like, yeah, you know what? That just made sense. And it's not necessarily anything specific, you know? Because I'm not talking about facts and information and telling you the latest studies, although I do that sometimes. The work that I mainly do is empowering people to think critically about health. So it's not what to think, it's how to think about it. Does that make sense? You almost never get that in the world of today because we're simply not taught anymore how to think critically. We're not instilled with the values of critical inquiry. And so um, let's start that up again. Really, my mission and everything I do is to help people or empower people to raise the bar on health so that we're no longer understanding health merely as absence of disease and rather as living with maximum vitality. So I'm this crazy girl who walked in the room and started doing a bunch of things and saying things. I haven't eaten in 35 days. I know some of you think I'm kidding. I'm on day 35 of a fast, and I feel fantastic, yeah? I worked from 8 a.m., to 3.30 p.m. literally without stopping today. That's not something I would recommend for anyone. <laughs> but I could do it, and I could do it so much more powerfully so because I'm fasting. You guys want to come in? Yeah. Come on in, of course. Thank you. And if anyone here doesn't have a bolster or a block, make yourself comfortable, grab a blanket. Thank you. Look at this. They brought a whole party. <laughs> Woo, the party started. Did you guys bring the green oh. juice? No? <laughs> Were we supposed to? <laughs> Okay, I love it. So um, before I start any of my lectures, I try to be really frank with uh, my opinions because anyone who can sit at the front of a room for like an hour's time probably has some opinions and so I'm not going to hide them from you. I call my biases my, my biggest influences, yeah? Everything I do is rooted in the science of natural hygiene, which is indeed the science of fasting. It's the understanding that when we have a clear slate and we allow the digestive tract to slow down and shut off, that that energy then, that would normally go to digestion up to 70% of normal available energy, is gonna go to heal and cleanse at a cellular level. Moreover, the switch that happens when we fast is that we stop running on this external fuel, food, calories, and we start instead running off of an internal fuel, prana, Life force energy. Who's a yogi in here? Yeah, we're at the yoga barn. It's okay. You can say you're a yogi. Yeah? So what we do in yoga is all based around the essence of reawakening our siddhis, our yogic powers, these deep inner powers inside of us, this awakening, this knowing. Hmm? If you want to learn more about that, I just released a yoga series. I'll post it on the thing. For CB now, it's really super cool. All through July, that's going to run too. Lots going on this summer. Uh, live streaming online yoga, but for now, we're going to understand that you have a power inside of you. 
Yeah? On the colonics manual that some of you saw over there, the second page, it has written, the power that made the body heals the body. I'll let that sit for a second. The power that made the body heals the body. And the inherent thesis of natural hygiene, the understanding, is that the body can and will heal itself. It simply has to be given the time and space to do so. And so fasting is definitely the fastest time and space. It's the most spacious time and space. And while fasting, the body has the most time to heal. And so we see rapid regeneration, renewal, right? return, disillusion of disease. Things that Western allopathic medicine would say are uncurable, simply reverse and disappear because the body has that power. Yeah, and you've been disempowered in your life through health. How many times have you come home from the doctor and they, someone said to you, what'd the doctor say? Right? As if you, who's lived in your body for 20, 30, 40, 50 so years, know nothing about this human vessel, this vehicle through which your spirit is traveling in this life? No, you do know a lot. And so a lot of the work we do in this space and in all the work I do is to reconnect to the body, to understand the signals it gives us, yeah? and start to be on the same team again as your body. And that's huge. That's huge. Does that sound interesting to anyone? Yeah, because that's when we all win, rather than I win because I take medication for my headache so I don't have to deal with the headache. But really, this cellular tissue, my body, loses. Yeah, because that headache was actually just my body's cry for help. Likely, my body's cry for water. But that's a whole other lecture. Right. So all of the, the rooting, the understanding, everything that I talk about is based in this premise, that the body can heal itself, yeah, that fasting is the fastest way for that to happen. And it's through my fasting life that I understand eating life. Yeah, I do eat. When Johanna was here three weeks ago, I think, she, she, she asked, do you like to eat? <laughs> like thinking I don't like to, yeah. All right, the answer was yes, by the way. But anyway, we are going to uh, head through the rest of my biases and then dive deep into this lecture. From there, uh, I have a doctorate in naturopathic medicine, an ND, so I, I'm a doctor, but I get a lot of like resistance, especially even from the yoga bar, and they're like, people are going to think you're a medical doctor, right? I don't care, right? The Latin root of the word doctor is docere, to teach. Yeah? What am I doing right now? I'm being a doctor at the truest essence. The modern doctor, the medical doctor, MD, is a pharmacist. He's paid lots of money, or she, often, paid lots of money to deal drugs. Pharmacist, drug dealer. So we have a big misunderstanding of what's going on in the world, yeah? And, and I consider myself not a doctor of medicine at all. I wouldn't have gone to medical school. I didn't want to study disease for five to eight years. I'm a doctor of health. I study health. When we focus on health, the disease takes care of itself. Does that make sense? And so this is a reshifting of our focus. Hmm? So, I also have a Master's of Science in something called Ethnobotany, which is the study of the relationship between people and plants. My specialty is gastroethnobotany, yeah, the study of food plants. It's really exciting, because a lot of those up there are plants, food plants. Yeah? And uh, we'll talk about that as we go. 
I'm also a career colon hydrotherapist and director of the colonics clinic here. And through years of working with the large intestine, the colon, those are the same thing, and seeing the elimination that comes, what comes out or what doesn't come out, and really how much poo people have inside of them, I've learned a lot about how this whole system works. And I find that today in the modern world, people are so overly concerned with the input. Right? Eating healthy, exercising, oh, I had my green juice today, or I eat pretty well, right? But no one's talking about the output. And yet the output, your poop, as, long as, as well as what comes out of your mouth, is often telling you more about how the whole system's working than the input itself. Does that make sense? So we're output challenged. And I have lots of podcasts on that. I have one called Congestion. You can listen to that. It was a pretty funny one in, in hindsight, but it was the like, worst audience I've ever had because I titled the lecture Congestion. And so the energy in the room was like everyone was scared. These are interactive, okay? So you guys can laugh. You can, if I ask a question, you can answer it out loud if it's a one-liner, those kinds of things. You have, I will talk about poop. All of that is permissive, okay? Good. Uh, I think that's all my biases. Uh, we're hyped up here in the detox department for our upcoming training. Um, so I do want to spend some time talking about that. Maybe I'll do it at the end. It's the first time we've done this here uh, publicly. I've done lots of private trainings here, but never open to the public. So it's a once-in-a-lifetime, until now, opportunity. Hopefully we'll have more in the future as well. So today it looks like we're doing a little bit of a food talk, which is always fun, because I normally do fasting talks. He's like, still talk about fasting. <laughs> This is the only question. No one else will be able to answer, ask a question until the end. Yeah. <laughs> um, there's this uh, persevering notion. It's an old one, maybe outdated, but it lingers that if you are hungry and you do not eat, you will develop ulcer. So at the back of my mind, if I go fasting, am I running the risk of developing an ulcer? That's cute. Yeah, so listen to my digestive system lecture. It's already up online. Um, and you'll learn about how when we smell food or when we think about food, by all means, digestive juices can start to secrete, but not to the point where hydrochloric acid levels would rise so high that your stomach would become ulcerated. Yeah, ulcers are only seen in cases of high animal product consumption. Yeah, and so that's something to reflect on. And um, if your stomach always had the digestive juices in it, then it would digest itself. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, 35 days, I've never had an ulcer in my life. I mean, I don't know how else to make it clear. Yeah, old wives' tales versus proof on your living body, which I strongly encourage. I have a do-it-yourself fasting lecture on the, on the website. You can check that out. Yeah? All right, save all other questions till the end. I tend to go on big tangents anyway, so I don't need any <laughs> stimulus for that. We're going to start right into sugar. And those of you who were here two weeks ago for the food combining lecture, was it last week? Last week. It was only last week. You missed the bloating by one week. <laughs> so we talked about sugar as an inflammatory substance and to understand sugar as well as to understand it as what I call a derived food. This is a kind of processed food. And so I give the example of sugar cane growing perhaps in the Far East, perhaps in China. I used to live in China and I would take sugarcane and chew on it. Has anyone ever had that experience? It's really super beautiful. It's nice and sweet, just like a little bit sweet, and the juices would flow in your mouth and you would have to chew through the fibers and all of this, yeah? And so that would be food in a whole food state. Our body interacts with nature in entirety. 
The whole idea of industrialization and processing is something very, very new, and our body has not changed to catch up with it. Yeah, in fact, our body hasn't really changed much on a physiological level in almost a million years. That's a, that's a really long time. That's like older than definitely any of you or your family or anyone you can remember. Yeah. And so when we see all of this fast, rapid industrialization that allows for the processing of food, it's very confusing to our body. So I'll take you with me through the process of me in China, right, chewing on sugarcane, and how that sugar then gets to be in a white bag halfway across the world. Right. Well, what happens is a bunch of sugarcane is cut down, and the sugarcane is taken to these big grinding machines. Have you ever seen sugarcane juiced? You can even see it sometimes in Bali. Right? So these machines, they press, and they're, they're mills, and they, they grind, and what's left over in two different parts is the juice. Right? It's light green, really nice and lightly sweet. The juice, the water of the cane comes out. It's like the plant blood. Yeah, just like a green juice, kind of. And then, outside on the other side, is fiber. The vegetable fiber from the sugar cane itself. So first step, step one in making sugar. Take away all vegetable fibrous matter. Easy, done. All right, step two. Take that water and send it somewhere where you can evaporate it. Where all the water can leave and you're left with a thick crystalline substance. This is known as sugar in the raw. It was really popular in the 1990s and then kind of went out of style. You might remember it. But raw sugar, in essence, it's, it's slightly colored. And that is not the final product, mind you, because then that raw sugar is sent to a millery where it's combed and refined into smaller and smaller crystals. They're broken up so that it's concentrated more and there's less space between the crystals. You can fit more into a smaller area. Right? It's refined, 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 refined. And then at the end, there's some bleach added to it. You know bleach, like you would use to like, sterilize things? Yeah. It's added to white sugar. That's why it's white. Isn't that crazy? And then we eat that in almost everything? Yeah? So you have left, then, a one kilo bag of white sugar. And this maybe would be the equivalent of like a whole gathering of the forest of sugar cane. Right there in that one bag. And so you take a few tablespoons to add to your next baking recipe. Just imagine chewing through all of that sugar cane to get that much sugar. You can't. You simply can't. Even if you took all the hours in the day, maybe 10 days, it would be crazy to be able to process that much. And yet you're processing it all in one bite from a muffin. <laughs> and so we start to see the idea of a processed food or a refined food or what I call them a derived food. That it's actually not a true food anymore. So sugar, it's, it's not food. Yeah. Food in its essence has an entirety. Whole foods are what's necessary for health. Does that make sense? And so, because of this dense concentration, the result is that when that comes into the body, some alarm signals go off. It's like like an ambulance. The body says, what is this? How am I supposed to... Pro Did you just chew through half of a forest of sugarcane? No. And so your body essentially responds in panic. It sends in the ambulances. Fresh oxygenated blood heading to wherever the area of intrusion was. 
In this case, it's your intestinal tract. And that fresh oxygenated blood, the, the ambulance, that's what we call inflammation. Inflammation is the first root of disease. Right? It's the body saying, okay, something's out of balance, something's wrong, we need to help. Yeah? Acute inflammation. It's like if someone breaks their arm, immediately it starts to swell. The blood flowing to the area is bringing oxygen, life force, healing energy. It's the body healing itself. And so when we put in something so foreign, so alien, like sugar, that's the body's response. Inflammation. Now, how does this manifest in your life? Well, it might be bloating. If that bloating doesn't feel bouncy, bouncy is normally gas, which would be a result of putrefaction or fermentation, things rotting somehow in the gut. But if it doesn't feel, so bounce your belly, everyone. Relax your belly and then bounce it. Does it feel like it has a bounce back to you? If it does, that bounce back is likely gas. If it doesn't, but it feels like there's some give, or maybe it's hard, you feel bloated and it's a little bit hard, that's inflammation. So that's how you start to tell the difference. All right? Most people are walking around. In fact, I think probably almost every modern human is walking around with a low-level autoimmune condition and chronic inflammation in the body. And if this doesn't result in the digestive system, it can result in sore joints. Does anyone have some joint issues? It can result in lack of flexibility, which also has some dehydration to it. It can result in being itchy from mosquito bites. Anyone? You find that your body's super inflammatory because maybe toxic blood right, results in seducting or seducing mosquitoes. And then afterwards, you get these big throbbing red itchy things, yeah, that's inflammation. I don't get bitten by mosquitoes. Yeah? I mean, sometimes I do, but then at those times, I reflect on what I ate. When I'm itchy, I say, okay, what is inflammatory in my diet or lifestyle that's causing this itchiness? Because without that extra added impetus of inflammation, my body wouldn't react like that because my body can and will and wants to heal itself. Yeah. Does that make sense? Your body can and will and wants to heal itself too. That wasn't a personalized thing. All right, cool. So in terms of sugar, um, there's this, this interesting movement in Australia that a lot of my clients for the past two years have come saying, I joined the, uh, what's my Australian accent? I joined the I quit sugar movement. Well, no, I can't do it. <laughs> Accents on demand, not tonight. Come back next week. Uh, I quit the I, I joined the I Quit Sugar movement. Have you heard of I Quit Sugar? I don't know the girl who wrote it. I mean, she says some things I don't agree with about fruit. Okay, fine. But it's a great campaign because she's getting people to quit sugar. Like, it's a drug. Because it actually, it is a drug. Yeah, I have a whole lecture on sugar where we talk about the whole history of it and go way more in depth. This is probably around where I'll stop for tonight, but you can check out that lecture. It's already on the podcast series. And um, in general, this is one of the most dealt drugs in the world. It's a white powdered substance. Do you know any other white powdered substance? Salt. Okay, I love it. I was thinking more along the lines of cocaine. <laughs> Do you see what I'm saying? 
that white powdered substance, I, I don't know if I call salt white, maybe factory made salt for sure, NACL table salt, yeah, okay. But in general, MSG, I love it, that's like gray, monosodium glutamate for sure. <laughs> These are indeed drugs. Yeah, that, that powdering, that concentration comes into the body in a mega dose that the body simply doesn't know how to handle. Right? Sugar, in essence, we know is a stimulant. It changes the blood sugar levels in the blood. It really messes with the liver because the body simply doesn't know how to process things in that concentration. And so the result is illness. The result is unease at levels that you could never pinpoint. But when you stop having these things in your life, all of a sudden, those diseases start to go away. And so... Check it out. See if perhaps this is something that you want to do an experiment on. My biggest intention is to give you the parameters for experimentation. Not to tell you what's wrong or what's right or what you should or shouldn't do. Not to even pretend like I know. But to be a guide on this living human laboratory for experimentation. Where you have inside of you the best experimental ground that you could imagine. And what I encourage you to do, more than read books, more than go buy the I Quit Sugar program, is to experiment on yourself. Yeah? I think there's one last thing I'll say on sugar, because I saw this film. Um, it was also Australian. A few weeks ago, they played it at a movie theater, Paradiso, which is amazing if you've never been. First vegetarian movie theater in the whole world. Um, and the movie was called, does anyone know? Yeah, that sugar film. How can I forget that? It's so simple. That sugar film. The premise is a man who's about to have a baby with his wife, and he's scared about the world that they're birthing the child into. And so he goes on an experimentation route, right, all around the world, where he starts to eat, I think it's about 47 grams of sugar, which is on average the amount of sugar that the modern human eats per day. 47 grams of sugar. That's a lot of sugar. A gram is a paper clip. So imagine almost 50 paper clips. That much sugar. Just stick a fist into that sugar bag and lick it up. Yeah? He finds that most days he gets through that just in his breakfast cereal and his milk. His sugar quota for the day is already gone. So any kind of processed food, like the entire middle section of the grocery store, is filled with this stuff. When food science started becoming really rich in the 80s, right, we started dealing with flavors and crunchiness and really processing things to mess with the human brain so that we think all these things are so delicious. You know those packaged cakes that you used to have as a kid? I know, everyone had those packaged cakes. You know what I'm talking about. Yeah? Those. Right? They've been so doctored so that you're almost in love with them. You can't put them down. All right. So that whole center aisle of the grocery, that's not food. Those are what we call food-like products. Anything that you pick up that has an ingredient list is not food. It's a product. Can you see that? And so, next time you go to the grocery, better yet, don't go to the grocery. Go to the farmer's market, because that's where they have food. But if you are going to go to the grocery, walk around the outside perimeter. Yeah, stay mostly in the produce section or the bulk section. That's where you find real food, stuff that your body will understand. Does that make sense? 
So I know it's super difficult uh, because the minute you go out to eat at a restaurant, they're going to have some sauce that they put in, right? That's going to have sugar in it. And so you're going to have to be so much more conscious. I have tons of clients, almost every client I see comes in my office, sits down and says, I'm pretty healthy. I eat a pretty good diet. And I think it's endearing, right? It's cute. Because if you eat at restaurants and you don't ask questions, I'm sorry, but there are things that you're taking in that you don't know about. And so the most incredible thing you could ever do is start to get excited about this stuff. Start to be a little more mindful about what you're putting in. Because what you're going to put in has a tremendous effect on how things work inside, including your mind. Sugar, being quite acidic, is going to have a depressant effect on the system. It's a stimulant at first, right? That's the woo, sugar high. And then after that, there's a crash. We know this from little kids, right? And that crash resulting afterward is going to have a tremendous physiological effect where the result of that more or less is acidity. And that's going to plummet our ability to have a healthy microbiome. Yeah, the good bacteria, the good flora in the system. And that good flora, which requires an alkaline environment, is what makes us able to be smarter, happier, right? and more alive in the world. It's what allows for brain function, not fat. <laughs> right? That's another big tangent people are going on today. You need fat for a healthy brain, things like that. It's not, it's not about fat, it's about bacteria. So check that out. I have a whole lecture on the microbiome, episode eight of the podcast. We are going to move on from sugar. I'm done with sugar. I quit it. Anyone else? Yeah, it's like it's so last century. It is, though. It's all the way 1600s, even. It's a few centuries ago. All right, next up is dairy. So um, this is my little dairy, my dairy spiel. Uh, and it's very animated because it was designed for kids when I was teaching English years ago in Taiwan. So bear with me. Pretend you're little Taiwanese kids. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. You don't have to. <laughs> no, one, no one thought that was funny. That was really funny. I just told you to pretend you're Taiwanese kids. <laughs> All right. So dairy. What is dairy? Come on. What is it? Okay. Okay. I love it. So it's the milk from cows used for breastfeeding. Go on. Yeah, it's made for baby cows for breastfeeding. You've heard that. Okay? So we've, we've gotten that far. Dairy derives from cow's milk. Yeah, although there are goats and sheep and other kinds of dairy, we're going to be talking mostly about cows. I mean, although this could be extended to those, most dairy, especially modern dairy, and dairy in processed foods or in restaurant ingredients, it's from cow's milk. Okay? So... Sometimes this part can get really ugly, so I have to decide beforehand how ugly I want it to get. That's not the kid's version. Uh, but in general, all right, we have the cows. Do you have cows on your thing? This is Oh, it's a, okay. It's different. It's not, it looks like a cow. I was going to say, wow, how perfect. So the cow has dairy because it's had a little baby calf. Have you seen baby cows? They're like this big. They're so cute. Go see one if you've never seen one before. You can snuggle up into it, yeah? So that little baby cow sucks on its mommy's udder, all right? And it's meant to grow from this size to this size in six months' time. From this size 
to this site in six months' time by drinking its mommy's milk. So I don't know why I would ever want to do that, but that's just me, all right? So that milk is meant for baby cows, all right? Unless you can imagine being a little baby cow and sucking on a mama's udder, right? It's simply not something that's part of a natural evolution of the species, yeah? No other species drinks another mammal's milk in the natural world, okay? So that's number one, just to think about. But let's go on and let's investigate dairy more because the thing is, not only is it meant to grow the cow from that size to that size in six months, but also that dairy is meant to process through a cow's body. And that cow's body has four stomachs. Anyone in here have four stomachs? I want to see. I want to do some experiments on you. So, <laughs> Looks like it. Love it. Last time I checked, each one of you guys only had one stomach. And physiologically, it functioned pretty differently than a cow's. Yeah, it can't really process grass, things that cows are supposed to eat all day unless they're in the United States and fed corn and corn syrup. But that's another story. Yeah. So you see that? So first off, we have some physiological differences. Second off, uh, have you guys ever noticed that your body sends you natural signals? Another podcast series is signals from the body. You can listen to it in its entirety, but one part of it is mucus. Has anyone ever had mucus before? Come on, don't lie to me. Yeah, yeah. Ooh, we had some sound effects with that one. Yes, we've had mucus before. Mucus is your body's defense shield. It's your body literally putting up a lining over its sensitive absorptive mucus membranes saying, oh, don't touch me. Whatever you've put in, don't touch me. It's a shield. And then that slimy mucus slimes out whatever it didn't want, either back up out your lungs, right, through the mouth or the nose, or maybe down through your digestive tract. Anyone ever seen mucus in their poop? It's very normal. If you're not looking at your poop, I highly encourage that you do. All right? But that is a sign that you've gotten rid of something that your body didn't want to process. Well, have you ever heard that when you have a cold, you shouldn't have dairy? Yeah. Why would that be? Why would that be? Oh, come on, you guys. Because it creates more mucus. Very good, she wins the prize. I'll tell you what the prize is later. So, <laughs> the more mucus created, wait a minute, we just had dairy and then more mucus is created. So somehow we know this. We know that dairy creates mucus. So our body is already talking to us. Another way that our body is talking to us is by this thing we call lactose intolerance. Has anyone ever heard of that one? Whenever there's some kind of diagnosed intolerance in the human species, it's often a message to the rest of the human species because we are one species, yeah? By our DNA, at least, we're almost incredibly identical. Bacterially, we differ a little bit more, but we are all one species. And so where someone exhibits an intolerance, it's a message to the rest of us. Right? Some of you, most of you probably, you come from northern Europe, yeah? or at least more from the northern part of Europe, right? where dairy cows have been domesticated and milked for generations. And so regardless of what your body says in the mucus, you just chug it on down, chug it on down, chug it on down. After a while, 
the body stops responding in such a way. Yeah? For example, I love this one. I was just in the United Arab Emirates hanging out with my friend who's Emirati, right? He, this guy's amazing. He grew up in the desert. Right? He grew up herding camels. Now he works for the prince. He got pretty lucky in life. But anyway, he grew up in the desert herding camels. And a friend that we were with wanted to try camel milk for the first time. And he was like, no, 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 you can't do that. If you've never had it, your body's going to reject it and you're going to get really sick. You have to have it several times until your body takes it. Hello? <laughs> Is that not telling you something? Do you understand? For sure people can subsist all off of these things like the camel herders in the desert do, right? Like the Maasai do in Sub-Saharan Africa. They subsist off of the blood and the milk of the animals, but that doesn't mean that that's our choice of diet. And it takes several rounds of exposing your body to that, punching the bag until there's no more bag left, yeah, giving yourself inflammation so many times until the body stops responding. Does that make sense? Yeah, that first little, oh, I got some mucus in my throat, is a sign. And if you don't listen to it then, then it very well may develop into disease later in life. Yeah? So, all right, I kind of got on a tangent already. I want to tell you a story, a little bit of a story about dairy. It's a story that's a true story from a friend of mine. She's an expatriate. She's been living abroad for a long time with her family, and she used to live in Saudi Arabia. So we're right back to the Middle East. All right? And in Saudi Arabia, she invited over all of her son's kids for his birthday party. And so like seven-year-old kids, all crazy in a room, they were from the international school. And in the international school, half of them were Saudi and half of them were, you know, international from Canada, from France, from Germany, from wherever. And so all the little kids come over and she's American. And so what does she feed at this good old American birthday party? Cake and ice cream, you bet. And what's ice cream? Dairy, very good. And sure, yeah, yeah, we're, we're going through the list, and sugar, for sure. And so, she serves the kids the cake and the ice cream, and there they are, scuffing it down. You know, kids love the sugar, of course, and the dairy. And like clockwork, about 20 minutes later, all of the Saudi kids rush to the bathroom and start vomiting. Yeah, true story. And so, what is that telling us? When you have an innocent, unaffected, unpolluted child's body that reacts in a certain way when it's a population that has not been punched like the punching bag. They haven't had this exposure for generations and then all of a sudden they're served it and there's this rejection. That's what vomiting is, a rejection from the body. That is a message. And so it's not that some people are lactose intolerant. Those people's bodies, let's say, are a little more honest, a little more sensitive, but that sensitivity is actually a good thing. It's your compass guiding you through life. Does that make sense? Yeah? So the last thing I think I'll say about dairy is just that uh, the protein in milk, casein, you might have heard of it. It was the test study subject or um, part, protein, really, used in one of my teacher's long experiments. If you've ever heard of the China study, Colin T. Campbell out of Cornell University, it's the longest clinical nutrition study ever done in the history of man. More than 40 years comparing diet and disease epidemiologically between rural Chinese people and the standard American diet. 
the results are not surprising. We see that the standard American diet causes a tremendous rise in diet and lifestyle related diseases, cancer, heart disease, autoimmune diseases, diabetes, and obesity. And so what Colin T. Campbell showed is that all five of these lifestyle related diseases are not only completely preventable, but plausible and reversible through diet and lifestyle change alone. And that diet and lifestyle change is one much more plant-based. You guys have never heard to eat more fruits and vegetables, have you? Yeah, that's the dietary advice I give. But when I say more, I mean like five times whatever you think is more. All right, so. And the last thing was about casein with the dairy, right? So casein was used once he did an epidemiological study, a population-based study comparing China and the U.S. He redid the study in laboratory, yeah, experimenting with casein. When the milk protein was given, he saw a tremendous rise in cancerous foci, in growth of cancer cells. When the level of casein dropped roughly to 5% or below, the cancer cells simply stopped forming. Yeah, it was just like that. The casein turned on cancer cells, and then without the milk protein, cancer cells turned off. Okay? So when you ask me what I think about dairy, right, that's milk, and you guys might say, well, what about cheese or yogurt or these other processed foods from milk? Right, well, they're still all from milk. Unfortunately, the reality of it is that milk is a collection of hormones, of pus, of fat, and a bunch of other things that you probably wouldn't want to eat electively. And then that is fermented. It's aged, right? And it's put through a process that turns into cheese. Now, who loves cheese? Oh, yeah, look at all those hands go up. I have lots of clients come through my office. They sit down and they say, I'll do anything you say. I just won't give up cheese. <laughs> Swear to God, if I could have a nickel for every time I've heard that. All right. Well, okay, why do we love cheese so much? I was talking about this earlier today. In one, yeah, cow's milk. Okay, nah. let's think about it more on a macronutrient scale. In one slice of pizza, for example, there's enough cheese to have a thousand calories. One thousand calories. How long does it take you to eat a slice of pizza? Anyone in eating contests? <laughs> yeah, two minutes. She said two minutes. Anyone else? Yeah. Thirty seconds. Now we have someone on us. Thirty seconds. All right. Within that thirty seconds to two minutes, I'll give you. Yeah. You have a thousand calories going into your body. There is almost no way that that would ever happen in the natural world. A thousand calories in one pop, just like that? The reptile part of your brain that's still functioning on survival and feast and famine? That thousand calories is a message like, hallelujah, we're gonna survive. Yeah? And the result physiologically in your body on the endocrine system level hormones is a straight dopamine shot to your brain. It's the same exact thing that happens when you snort cocaine. And so when we have these things that we just love so much, right, is it the cheese that's filled with pus cells and then fermented? 
Or is it the physiological response from having that many calories at once? Yeah. And that's something I just want you guys to sit with and to think about. And next time you have dairy, because I know you're, you're probably going to leave here and go out for an ice cream. I'm not, I have no attachment to that either way. But next time you do, I strongly encourage you to check in with your throat and see if you can feel that mucus lining coming. Hmm? This self-experimentation is what's going to teach you. That is your biggest teacher. No nutrition book, no guide, no person like me standing up here saying things. It's your body that is your greatest teacher. All right? So there's a lot more I could say about dairy. We could do a whole lecture about dairy perhaps one week. So check the podcast like a year from now. Maybe it'll, <laughs> it'll be up there by then. Uh, but in general, um, yeah. I had my mom's breast milk for a while. That was yummy. And then I grew out of needing it because I, I, I need to survive more on carbohydrates, yeah, which doesn't mean bread. It means fruits and vegetables. As we get older, we need to fuel our brain on sugar. So those sugars are preferable. Right? The ratio of fat in breast milk is very high because babies need a lot of fat. But then past a certain age, we, we don't need that anymore. So we naturally evolve. Okay. So moving on from dairy to chocolate. So I should, I should probably get out your question. Uh-oh. Yeah. Yeah, so is so is yogurt good for the gut? There's been no experimentation on this. For sure, if it does have a high level of bacteria, which is a byproduct of the process of intelligent fermentation, then that good bacteria will travel through the body. But is the negative effect of the acidity of the milk, the dairy? and the, the perhaps inflammation and the mucus that it causes, does that outweigh the benefit of the probiotic? So this is a question that simply hasn't been studied. There's not an answer. I, I founded something called the Microbiome Think Tank, and in Thailand we're setting up a lab to actually do testing on things like this. Yeah? In the meantime, better play it safe than sorry, because there are amazing alternative yogurts, like if you guys haven't tried yet, Kiefer Life, the Kiefer brand in town, yeah, it's a fermented food. They make a coconut yogurt. You can get it down at the juice bar. The juice bar is open till 8, so that's your homework. Go down. It's like 30000 or something for a tub. This stuff is literally life-saving. Literally life-saving. Yeah? It's one of the strongest, if not the strongest, probiotics I've found worldwide. You'll know if a probiotic works or not because it should make you poop within an hour of consuming it. Yeah, so try that stuff before you leave Bali. Have a tub a day. Before you go, it's going to be the best way to boost your immune system as well as the digestive system. All right, so we're on to chocolate. So I could, funny enough, give a whole lecture on chocolate as well. Um, we'll just go back in history, right, from Euro European colonialization, where we found that through imperialism, the cocoa was discovered. It came to us from Mesoamerica, Latin America, Central America, a place where I've spent a lot of time. I've sat with cacao shamans doing work with medicinal chocolate. It's a very different species of chocolate than most of you eat, the medicinal variety of chocolate, which you might have in Ubud because we have cacao ceremony all the time in this town. It's called criollo. It's a kind of chocolate that's a mix 
from the time of Spanish colonialization. It's a mixed breed. It exists in 1% of the cacao trees found in the world. Uh, we are growing some of it here in Indonesia. My friend Ben Ripple, who owns Big Tree Farms, that's a really cool place to visit, and they have a whole cacao factory, Big Tree Farms. That, that's a really good field trip. If any of you are looking for a day trip, go to the real Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. It's called Big Tree Farms Cacao Processing Center. It's one of the biggest bamboo buildings in the world, and it's a huge factory for chocolate. It's pretty cool, because guess what? He doesn't use sugar. He uses coconut palm nectar in his sugar, as a sugar, right? which is, of course, from the inflorescences, the flowers of the coconut palm tree. Very different, very high in minerals, although still a processed food. Anyway, so chocolate, when we look back in time, the chocolate comes from cacao. It was a misspelling that came into choco. And then the lat part, la, latte, the lay, lay, anyone speak French in here? Milk. So the French, it was actually, I think, the Swiss, right, made this creation of chocolate plus milk plus sugar, cacao, milk, sugar, and they called it chocolate. All right? So the cacao bean, what is it? Who can tell me botanically what it is? Sugar. No, the cacao bean. You're cute. I love it. She's like, every answer is sugar. <laughs> okay. Is it a fruit? The cacao pod, pod for sure is a fruit. Yeah, they're gorgeous. You'll see them around Bali. You'll just be driving on a Bali road. Look out for them. It looks like a mini American football except for red or yellow. Look it up online, maybe, then you'll be able to spot it. Okay, the leaves are long and green. Beautiful tree. Yeah, it's about a medium height tree. It's a spreading tree. You'll see. All right. Well, inside of that pod, of that pod, is indeed a fruit. It's a lovely, if you can have chocolate fruit. Can you believe that? It doesn't taste like chocolate. But it's a lovely, sweet, white fruit. Lots of flesh. And inside of each of the pods of fruit are these little stones. Right? The seeds. They're actually purple when they're raw. Believe it or not, purple seeds. It's like you're tripping on drugs while you're eating this red pod fruit. Yeah, try it out. And those seeds are what later turns into cacao beans. All right? So what is cacao or what is chocolate? Now, botanically, tell me. Is it the root of plants? Is it the flower of a plant? Is it the leaves of a plant? Thank you. It's the seed of a plant. Hallelujah. You can have a prize too. All right? It's the seed of a plant. If you guys hang out with me for long enough, you'll come to understand that seeds of plants are the embryos. They're the babies, the future babies of plants. By all means, the mama doesn't want you to eat the baby. In fact, seeds of plants are incredibly intelligently hidden inside of a juicy, sweet fruit. We already talked about that. So that you'll eat the fruit, swallow the seed, which has an endotoxic coating around it so that you can't digest it, and then you'll poop it out the other direction, likely far away from where the plant was growing in a perfect little pile of compost. That's the biological imperative of the plant. When you think of something like strawberries, they are so smart. There's no way you can deceive them, and they're definitely going to run through your body. Isn't that amazing? So I can tell you this because I've seen way too many nuts and seeds come through the colonics tube undigested, passing through. You see that? Yeah, so I'm saying something pretty revolutionary here. So it might affect some of your diets. 
at least to the reflection on your diets. But in general, we've learned that cacao is a seed, which means inherently that it's not really digestible by the body. But what we do, of course, to make commercial chocolate is we go and we roast it and it goes through a big process. So by all means, chocolate is a processed food. Yeah. Even often the raw chocolate. Because true raw, raw, raw cacao, which would be, right after you finish eating the white flesh, it would be that purple bean, it's super bitter. So quite often it's put through a process of sun drying or more often roasting to change the insides. And then it's ground. If you're going to have a chocolate bar, then it's tempered. It's put through a big kind of process. And then it's mixed with sugar and milk and anything else, maybe some oil in there. You see? And in the end, it's a much more concentrated dose than you would ever get in that cacao pod. So already we're looking with that idea of concentration. But back to seeds. Because they have that toxic layer around them, the human body doesn't want to have them. When you have a lot of them in concentration together, the human body really doesn't want to have them. And so the result of that is the fact that chocolate in its pure state, cacao, is indeed a laxative. And trust me, I can tell you this after cacao ceremony, <laughs> where you drink a medicinal dose of this stuff. It simply is a slight poison to the body, just like any kind of laxative, herbal, pharmaceutical, or coffee. It's a slight poison to the body. And then it runs through the body out the other end, which means that it's incredibly dehydrating, yeah? and that perhaps it's not something that should be indulged in regularly. Okay, now this is a specific question from Joanna at the end of the detox week last week. She's a woo, proud detoxer. We found, she said, also I thought that cacao has caffeine in that, making us addicted and creating an unrelaxed feeling inside. This is a really big misunderstanding. Cacao actually doesn't have caffeine in it. It has what's called theobromine, which comes from the Latin name of cacao, theobromus cacao. Theobromus means food of the gods, right? This was thought in the Mayan religion to literally be the food of the gods because it was that rich. By all means, they didn't want Hershey's and everyone to start distributing it and concentrating it. And so we find that this sacred plant, Theobromus cacao, has in it high levels of that chemical named after it, theobromine. And theobromine is a, it's a kind of chemical that has the effect on the body of making you feel a little bit happy or a little bit high. Certain kinds of chocolate, like that Criollo variety, the one that I mentioned from Guatemala before. Yeah, you guys can look up Keith the Cacao Shaman if you want to learn from my teacher. You can order chocolate from him as well. He handpicks the highest quality, and they ship it all over the world. But um, it's very high criollo in anandamides. Anyone heard that word before? Ananda? Doesn't it sound like a yogic word? Come on, I don't know how many yoga teachers in here. No? How about ananda balasana, happy baby pose? Joy. Yeah, there we go. Joy, bliss. Ananda means bliss. And so anandamid is a chemical that's been named after the Sanskrit word ananda, bliss. And so the anandamid is a bliss chemical. It's a bliss hormone. Chocolate has in it a chemical that makes us feel blissful. That's a lot better than the dopamine shot straight to your brain from that cheese. Well, wait, maybe we'll mix the milk with the cacao, right? With the sugar, we have the sugar high. We have the dopamine from the milk. We have the theobromine and the anandamides from the chocolate. 
I'm like a cow. No wonder you guys are tripping on this stuff. Does it start to make sense as to this whole paradigm of chocolate? Now, commercial chocolate is uh, much lower in, in anandamides than, than others. Right? You have to get the good Criollo variety for that. But my result, what I'm saying here is not, I'm not going to tell you to eat chocolate or not. My intention is to make you more conscious about what chocolate actually is. Right? Any kind of commercial chocolate is a food-like product. Right? There's that much chocolate in it. There's probably synthetic chocolate flavoring in candy bars by now because right, cacao is a bit expensive. You want to know how it's processed? Yeah? There's, all of the nutritional claims about chocolate are relative, super relative, because guess what? It's a seed of a plant. So inherently, the body doesn't want it inside. It's going to send it right through. So even if there's a high amount of nutrition in that seed outside of the body, there's no guarantee that your body is going to hold on to that or desire to. Does that make sense? That's a, that's a central fallacy of the whole idea of nutritional science. The idea that what exists in the food outside of the body is understood or absorbed by the body. That's, that's a big one. But a whole other lecture in and of itself. All right, so that's some food for thought on chocolate, some ideas, some understanding as to why you love it so much, perhaps. Right? And also some more insight on what's happening in the body. Right? I'm just going to get through soy because we're already over time, and then maybe we'll have time for one question. All right, so much more to say on each of these. But soy, 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 soy. Um, soy is what? Think botanically. Oh, there we go, a bean. And what we learned last week in food combining is that beans are actually seeds. The seed of a plant, part of the Legumiaceae family. It's the seed of a bean, yeah? The seed of a bean family plant, a legume. All right, so beans are seeds. Soybeans, thus, when they're unprocessed, is the body going to understand them or want them to be inside? No, it's that simple, right? Tempeh has become a really famous uh, nature food for those going into more of a healthy lifestyle. It's one of the most common foods consumed in Indonesia. And tempeh, it's like tofu in that it's this soy-based replacement project, at least a product, at least in the Western world. Um, but it's a staple food in many places in Indonesia. The main difference here is that tofu, which traditionally was fermented, Especially in the West now, it's not at all anymore fermented. It's just processed. So it's like a bunch of soybeans made into a paste of a white block and then left there in some water. Yeah, I call, I call tofu vegetarian spam. Does anyone know what spam is? Yeah, boxed meat. All right, anyway. So that actually isn't really absorbable by the body. Again, we have all these nutritional claims about soy, how it's so wonderful, this and that. Well... Tempeh is an alternative to that. It's a soybean that's been fermented, literally cultured right there in a block of mold. It's a lot like cheese. <laughs> the experiments that I've done on my body mm, tend to show me that tempeh causes my allergy flare-ups and other things like that, that it's not necessarily something I want to eat. That's the honest-to-goodness on a body that's been a living laboratory for 15 years. Right? For you guys, I encourage you to make those experiments on yourself. Please, don't take what I say as gospel. 
Don't believe me at all. Verify me or verify otherwise and then let me know about it. We're scientists in these living laboratories, all right? So we got to do some peer-reviewed research. <laughs> From there, soy has um, a pretty big rap because nearly 90% of the soy in the world <coughs> grown in the United States is genetically modified. Genetic modification is a whole other topic in and of itself, but essentially you don't want no GMO <laughs> anywhere in, near, or on your body. Yeah, that's a recipe for dis-ease. And so um, stay away from most all soy because most all, 90%, is GMO soy. Now if you find that organic soy, do you still want to eat it? Do some experiments, but when we get down to it, it's a bean, it's a seed which means that inherently it's not something the body wants to eat. Some of you might have heard of the imbalancing effect created hormonally when we have soy. Have you heard of that? Soy gives you man boobs. Anyone? No? The thing is, is that that's actually for all beans. It's not just for soy. Soy just takes the bad rap. So there are some things to think about. Was that food for thought for whoever asked the soy question? Are you content? Yeah. All right. Great. I like. Yes, I'm content. Uh, we might have time for like one question. Yeah, lots of leafy greens, tons of fruit. The entire conception of protein is a fallacy. Yeah, the guy who discovered proteins said, "Oh my God, it's a good thing. We can't have too much of a good thing." And then the nutritional advice in the 30s went up, right, about 30 percent, and it was super unnatural. Our hospitals are filled with people who have literally gotten too much dietary protein. And so really the question should be instead, not where do you get your protein, but how do you make sure you don't get enough protein? Or too much protein, pardon. How do you make sure you don't get too much protein? So I could ask you that, or I could ask you, where does a gorilla get its protein? Because right, he's pretty strong. How about a cow? Where does he get his protein? You see? So our whole understanding of animal products or flesh, right, or even nuts and seeds or beans as protein, it's totally a fallacy. Totally a fallacy. I have a whole other lecture on this. Um, I think it's released on the podcast. If it's not, I'll put it on and it'll be released in September. So check back then. Um, and what is my diet? Tons of fruits and vegetables. Tremendous amounts of fruits and vegetables. A lot of water and a lot of love. Thanks for joining us for another episode of the Vitality Podcast. Please click over to Apple Podcasts and leave a rating and review to spread this work with the world. You have a part in transforming humanity's health. Keep enjoying this free resource and make sure to give back by sharing, subscribing, and checking out all of Andrea's work at liveforvitality.com, where you can find links to Instagram and other social media. Andrea also gives astrology readings, holds online fasting retreats, and teaches detox courses and advanced yoga teacher trainings. So come to liveforvitality.com and let Andrea transform your life now.